I was uh, never a great test taker uh, in school. Don, were you a good test taker in I school? I love tests. You love tests. <laughs> Sorry. You're sick. Have a seat. Have a seat. All right. I was never a, a great test taker and didn't like tests uh, at all. And uh, one of my least favorite parts of any test was the true or false section. Didn't like it. Uh, because I have always been one that is prone to overthink things, overanalyze things. And with true or false questions, it's easy to do that. Um, even though most of the time uh, my teachers were, were nice and good and fair, people like Mrs. Harvey and Mr. Cuthbert right there, um, most of the time they wouldn't really throw you any curves. They kept things pretty straightforward in that kind of uh, questioning on a test. They, they try to keep it objective as much as possible. But I would still manage to read into it, overthink it, and think, well, this could be true, or, depending on how you look at it, it might be false. And then I would start having like a panic attack, you know, right there. Which, which is it? What is it? True or false? True or false? Ah! And I, I would kind of just lose my mind. And so I would overthink it and overthink it rather than knowing that in this particular test, uh, it, was, it was an objective thing. It was either true or it was false. It, it, there really wasn't many options between the two. It wasn't open interpretation most of the time. Uh, but I really struggled with it. And uh, so I've never been a huge fan of true or false questions. And uh, maybe some of you are that way. And I know that we just went through uh, the standardized testing at Greater Beckley. Uh, that was fun. Uh, right, our, our Greater Bethany students loved the standardized testing, uh, all of that. And ABC students and tech students, you guys don't want to see another true or false quiz or any test for a long, long time because you just got through all your finals. Um, but nonetheless, I'm going to give you guys a true or false quiz today. Okay? Um, true or false quiz. And so here is the first question for you to consider. Is it true or false? You can never drink too much water. Is it true or false? Let let me do this. Let's let's keep it organized, class. (laughs) If you think it's true, raise your hand. You can never drink too much water. Okay, wow. Universal belief that it is... um, False then, right? Is that what you think? It's false? You guys are smart. Yes, it is. Uh, It is entirely possible to drink too much water. Um, I don't know this from personal experience, but uh, my wife's Aunt Jean uh, did absolutely drink too much water. Uh, She drank, I don't know how many gallons of water she drank, but... Uh, When she went to the doctor, because she was having some symptoms, the doctor uh, said, you need to stop drinking too much water. How many glasses did she drink before noon? It was was insane. Eight glasses of water before 8 a.m. And then she would drink water all through the day like that. So it was a bit excessive. 
and she actually um, had the symptoms of water poisoning or water intoxication. It's a real thing. Look it up. It's very real. If you drink beyond so many liters of water uh, an hour and cumulatively a day, then you're going to start to have problems. Your organs will actually shut down. Uh, It it affects your bloodstream. It's terrible. Uh, So drink water, just not too much. You, it is possible to drink too much water. All right, second question. It's another health-related question, okay? If you eat too many carrots, you will turn orange. All right, show of hands. True? Okay. All right, put them down. Anybody think that's false? A couple of brave souls. Uh, it is true. It is true. You guys are just way too smart. Um, again... Aunt Jean. <laughs> this is how I know. I know it's possible. I haven't ever eaten enough carrots to even come close to that. Um, but she ate so many carrots that her skin actually started to change to an orange hue. Uh, people started asking her, you know, if she was related to the Oompa Loompas, you know. Um, but uh, it, it, was, it was actually something that happened. And so beware of eating too many carrots. It's good, but uh, as with all things in life, in excess, it's harmful, right? So, um, all right, still with our quiz. I'm going to shift gears. I have to do something biblical. I mean, we are in church after all, right? So here's a, a biblical question for you. Um, worshiping God in nature can be a good substitute for going to church. True or false? True. Anybody say true? Yep, I'm down with that. No? All right. You have to say that because, you know, the pastor's asking. But, um, no, I I would imagine and I would hope, certainly, that you would say, no, that's absolutely false, that's ridiculous. However, I have actually heard people say to me, straight to my face, in all seriousness, when asked why they no longer come to church, or where do they worship, or where do they fellowship, you know, that came up in conversation, and with, with, all, um, with all seriousness, they said, my church is the great outdoors, and they believed that they didn't need to be part of a local assembly, a local body of believers, uh, or they were and now are no longer because they couldn't handle, you know, the mess that comes with that. They didn't like the, the stuff that comes along with being part of a, a group of believers, of imperfect, still growing, still in the sanctification process believers. And they just checked out. And they said, hey, I, you know, I love Jesus. I love God. But I can worship him better than I ever did before just by going out into nature and kind of being one with him through nature. You may have heard it too. I, I imagine you have at some point, and uh, some people will actually believe that's, that's true, but it's not at all, because the Word of God says, my brothers, do not forsake the assembling, the gathering of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, like people who hold to this kind of mindset. And it actually says, but rather, all the more of assembling and gathering together as you see the day, the day of Christ, the day of the return of our Savior, the day of the judgment approaching. So, yeah, that's absolutely false. All right, one more, one more. Elders and deacons were set up as two separate offices for the church. Is that true or false? What do you think? True? Let me see your your hands. True? True? All right, who thinks that's false? Anybody think that's false? 
Okay? All right? The Bible is very clear that elder and deacon were set up as offices for the church, but are separate offices from one another. You have elders in the church, you have deacons in the church. Elders are the spiritual leaders uh, of the church, the, the governance. Uh, deacons are to have the role of the servant uh, of the church and the stewards of the church and caretaking for the members. So something to consider. Uh, the Bible is actually very clear on that distinction and something for us to think about. Why did I do this uh, little, little quiz with uh, very obvious answers, admittedly? Um, it's because it would be nice, wouldn't it, if everything in life were that obvious, that simple, you didn't really have to think through things or really analyze things too much as things come at you in our world, in our culture, even in the church. Uh, that'd be great, right? If, if things were that easy to answer. Well, yeah, of course that's true. Or, yeah, absolutely that's false. That'd be really great. Unfortunately, that's not the case. And while some things are certainly obvious and clear and no-brainers, there's a lot of things that we are exposed to that we have to contend with and deal with in our society, in our age, and even, yes, in the church, that are just not that simple, that are far more complex. Things that really have to be weighed out and thought through Things that are, are difficult questions to answer. And that's going to become increasingly true, not less true. The longer the Lord tarries, the longer His return is delayed in His sovereignty, the more culture and society and our world are going to continue to unravel. It's just a fact. And things are going to continue to be questioned that before weren't. Things that seemed for a long, long time to have obvious, clear answers and positions will continue to be second-guessed and third-guessed and attacked and done away with altogether. And the church of Jesus will continue to have to wrestle with things, even within its walls. Is this still true, or is it not? Will, have to, will be the question, as it already is being asked, it will continue to be asked. And the temptation for those of us who have been part of church for a long time, those of us who have walked with the Lord a long time, the temptation is for us to sit back and even without meaning to, to kind of develop an arrogance if we're not careful. That we can, we can think, well, because we have known the truth for so long, and, and we know it and can recognize it so easily, we're not as susceptible to deception as other people are. That's a temptation. And it's easy to, to have the mindset that that's other people's problems. We know the truth, and we don't have to worry about what is true or false because we can recognize it really easily because, wow, we, we've, just, we've been part of the sources of truth for so long. And so that's their issue. That's other people's problem. I don't have to worry about that. That's the temptation. And it's easier to get there than we might think. 
So for this series, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some specific examples of things that culture and society and the world around us are, are questioning and uh, disputing as being true. And some of those things are even within the church of Jesus today, in the modern Western church especially. And I want us to be careful that we don't take that kind of mindset like, well, I, I don't need to hear this. I already know what's true. I don't need to worry about things that, that might uh, be questioning what is true or, or what, is, what is false, because I already know. Be careful. Be careful. Because the early church, full of born-again believers like you and me, who had the truth, who knew the truth, who heard the truth proclaimed to them day in, day out, were still examples of how easy it is to fall prey to deception. How easy it is to start to question what shouldn't be questioned. How easy it is to start questioning what before they had not. And we'll see today an example of a couple churches, local churches, that had to be brought back to the place of truth because they were departing from it. And it's sad, but it's true, and it's possible, and it's real. And so what we need to do is make sure we're on guard against that. So before we look at the specifics as we go on in this series, I want us to make sure we are all on the same page with a very firm foundation. So we're going to look at what has to be absolutely true for us today, what needs to be our anchor, what has to be the foundation from which we proceed as we are are dealing with some of these specifics that we're going to be talking about in in this series, and specifics uh, all throughout our world, all throughout our life, all throughout society. So, in 2 Corinthians 11.3, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, which he planted, uh, and really established firmly, established well, he went on from the church at Corinth after being there for two years, two and a half years even, and he went on, and uh, went about further work and further church planting. And it didn't take long, and he started getting reports about what was going on in the church of Corinth. And it totally blew him away. Uh, And if he hadn't heard it from multiple sources and reputable sources, he said himself he probably wouldn't believe it if it weren't for the people that were saying uh, what was going on, if it weren't for the people reporting what they were and the, the multitude of that. And so he wrote back to them and said, I can't believe I've got to start at the beginning again, but obviously I do. And so here we go. And he went through all these different issues. Uh, he dealt with great sexual immorality. He dealt with idolatry. Um, he dealt with lying and backbiting and jealousy. And then, in this particular passage, he's actually dealing with the presence of false teachers, false prophets, and, and he's, he's astonished at the fact that this church, which knows better, is putting up with it. They're not dealing with it like they should. They're questioning what they should not question. They're questioning what they have no reason to question, and they're accepting things that they should absolutely question and reject as not being true. So that's a little bit of context, and here's what he says. 2 Corinthians 
But I fear that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds, he's writing to believers, remember, to the church, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he had good reason to say that. We won't spend time in the rest of this passage, but if you are familiar with it, you know, and and if you're not, it'd be worth reading through, uh, that there was a a huge, huge presence of false teachers, false apostles, false prophets coming into the church, sneaking in, and very subtly calling into question the very truth of God. And the church was falling prey to that. And it was very much like what happened with Eve and the serpent. The serpent... We know from Genesis, it was very subtle. He was very cunning. And the serpent was the form that Satan himself took, who is the great deceiver of humanity. We know that the Bible says that he can masquerade himself as an angel of light, when in reality he's the prince of all darkness. And so what Satan did through the serpent with Eve... It's exactly what he did to this church, which is to say, did God really say? And that's always Satan's tactic. It's always his strategy. He doesn't present this um, information that is just glaringly, blatantly wrong, that that is so obvious that you have to say, well, of course it's false. I'm not going to buy into that. I'm going to reject that. It's not as easy as the examples I gave you. He takes enough of the truth to make you listen, to make you think about it, and he he twists it in just a subtle enough way that makes you actually question if there's wisdom in what he's saying. It's what he always does. Did it at the very beginning, does it through every age, he did it with the church here in Corinth, he does it today with you, with me, and with the whole church. It's always his way. Did God really say? Maybe, just maybe, what you hear other people saying about what you have held on to as the absolute truth, maybe it's worth investigating again. Hey, they make a lot of good points. Maybe it is archaic, this thing that you're holding to, this collection of story after story and Principle after principle. Maybe it is just story. Maybe it is something that was applicable and relevant to the people in the time in which these things were written. But, hey, can we really expect God to hold you to the same standard today? See, that's what's happening all over the place. Not just in secular society, but in the sacred as well. There's example after example after example that I could give you of what were once absolutely solid churches anchored to the timeless truth of God's Word that have departed left and right, that have questioned left and right, that have forsaken and compromised. And it's going to keep happening. So the warning here, which was not just a warning, but was an accurate diagnosis of the church here in Corinth, is worth heeding by us. And it's applicable for us. Because as they went, 
so could we, but for the grace of God and but for our determination to absolutely stand firm on what is the timeless, always relevant Word of God. Unless we resolve here at Faith Baptist Church and as individuals that we will stay anchored to what is the only trustworthy anchor in our world and in our life, the Word of God, unless we do that moment by moment, day after day, year after year, unless we know it, unless we love it, unless we apply it to our lives and to what we hear coming at us, we could just as easily have the same diagnosis set of us. And it wasn't just the church in Corinth, unfortunately. In Galatians chapter 1, I want you to look at verses 6 through 8 with me. Galatians 1, 6 through 8. It will be on the screen too. Uh, This is another example of a a church that Paul himself planted that received the truth, that believed it, that, that received the message of the gospel, that went forward and they were growing. They had great potential and they had great promise. But once again, like in Corinth... False teachers snuck into the body and they called into question everything that they had previously heard that had been proclaimed to them and preached accurately and faithfully. And they started to say, well, maybe there's something to that. Maybe Paul wasn't completely right. Maybe we should actually question some of this a little bit more. And that's what they did. Here's what he had to say to them. Galatians 1, verse 6, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him, not from me, not from me, Paul. Why did you desert what I had to say? Why did you question me? That's not what he's concerned about. I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him, from God, who called you, By the grace of Christ. See, it wasn't Paul's call to them that caused them to come into the grace of God, to the gospel. It was God himself calling them through Paul. That's always the way it works. The messenger is never the one who calls someone to salvation. It's always God through that messenger. Using the message that he gave them, the message of the gospel. It says, you're turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is reverse repentance. Repentance is turning away from falsehood and from the lie of the enemy and from the lie of sin. It's turning away from that to the truth and righteousness of God found in Christ. What Paul is saying here is, you're actually doing the opposite. You're turning away from the grace found in Christ. You're turning away from the truth exclusively found in Christ. And you're turning away from all that, turning to a different gospel. A pseudo-gospel. Verse 7 is very important, the clarification here. Not that there is another gospel... By very definition, the word gospel means the good news, the truest message of ultimate good news. 
Paul isn't saying there might be another version of that out there. That's not what he means by you're turning away to a different gospel. He's saying to a supposed gospel, to a false version, to an artificial gospel. But there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, the false gospel that was present here and that is present even uh, in our age and always will be, it doesn't just happen. False teaching doesn't just appear. Poof, there it is. It's always brought in by people. It's always brought in and propagated by false teachers. It's communicated just like the truth is. That's why we have to be very wary of it. And that's what was happening here. People were coming in to the church, troubling them, distorting, twisting, perverting the gospel of Christ, just like in the garden, just like what was happening with the Corinthian church. The serpent was up to his same old strategy. Did God really say? Does God still say? What was happening here, it was a group of people known as the Judaizers. And they were coming in and saying to these Jewish Christians, you know, it's great that you've believed Paul's message. It's great that you've accepted Jesus. We love Jesus too. He's great. But don't abandon the law. Don't get rid of the law of Moses. Why? Well, because as great as Jesus is, it really is Jesus plus Moses that guarantees Full salvation. You really want to know you've got eternal security. You've got a hold of the law and Christ. And they started thinking about it. And they started analyzing. And they didn't hold to the, the pure truth of the gospel that Paul presented, which was Christ plus nothing equals everything. And they started thinking, well, maybe that's true. And they took the bait. And they were carried away. And they were burdened when they never were supposed to. It's not Jesus plus the law. It's Jesus fulfilling the law and then freeing you from the weight of the law. That's the gospel. And that's the gospel that Paul proclaimed to them. And so he reminds them of that. And he reminds them that there isn't multiple versions of the gospel. There's only one. And here's what he says about that in verse 8. But even if we, speaking of of him and the other apostles, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, again, not because they were just that good, not because it's what they came up with and they just really want you to listen to them because they have this ego problem, that's not what he's saying. It's because it was the only truth. That's why he wants them to pay attention to what was preached by him and the others. If they should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. That's literally in Greek, anathema. That means, let them be condemned to hell. Strong language, yes. But necessary language. Because what he's saying is, you've got people coming in, and they're, they're deceiving you away from the only thing that can actually save your soul. 
And by doing that, they are very much a part of the agenda of the enemy and they are doing exactly what Satan himself is doing, which means there is no way they can be part of the church. There's no way they are part of Christ. There's no way they have the gospel themselves and they are being used as agents of the enemy. Therefore, he's saying, let them go ahead and just get what is coming to them. He's saying... They, they obviously are already going to be judged. Let it happen now. Let, let, them, let them be taken away from you. Let them stop troubling you. He's saying let them be completely cut off, which is what's going to happen to them anyway, obviously, unless they were to repent themselves. So strong, strong language. But the reason that Paul said this so strongly and felt so strongly about it Uh, is because of how important it is to recognize falsehood from truth. How important it is to believe and to remember and to be anchored to the fact that there aren't multiple Gospels. There's not your truth and my truth, and so your truth's good for you and my truth's good for me, and hey, we'll just all kind of follow our own path. No, no, that can't happen. It, It doesn't work that way doesn't work that way at all. So, what did the Galatian church need to do about that? What did the Corinthian church need to do about it? What is the church today, our church here, what do we do about that? Because you know as well as I do that there are multiple sources coming at you all day long that do the same thing as the people coming into the Galatian church and the Corinthian church did. All day long, people are calling into question why we believe what we believe. And have you considered this? And have you thought about this? And let's look at this from a different angle. People that are in no way claiming to be Christians, but people who also claim to be Christians. It's coming from both sides. And what is easy, it's not right, it's not logical, it's not wise, But what is easy is to stop fighting all of that because there's so much of it and it's so heavy at times. And the easy choice is to just kind of give in and say, well, you know what, maybe they're right and I can still be right too. And hey, let's just kind of view this whole theology thing and and this, this whole Christianity thing like a big buffet. You know, I'll, I'll, I like what I see over here, so I'll take some of that. And over here, that sounds good. Wow, that, that sounds better than what I've, I've had over here, so let me just take some of that too. And then you just have this plate full of all these different things. And on one hand, yeah, that's, that's easier. It's easier to not stand strong on the integrity of God's Word in some cases. Sometimes it's easier just to give in and kind of take that pluralistic view. But that's never right. It's never wise, and it's never beneficial in the long term, and it's certainly never, ever going to be what gives you the truth that you need for salvation, the truth that you need to know God in a personal way, the truth that you need to be accepted by God. That's never going to happen. And what might appear to be easy and comfortable will always end up coming back on you and you'll be far worse for it. 
And many of our brothers and sisters have done the very same thing with issues that we're going to be talking about throughout the rest of the series. Things like homosexuality. Things like abortion. Things like even cohabitation outside of the same sex variety. You know, yeah, it's okay as long as you love each other. You might as well go ahead and just live together. That's fine. And there's other examples. Things like evolution. There's, there's all sorts of examples of people that have decided, you know what, it's just too hard fighting anymore. It's just too hard to stand firm on the truth. There's just too much of an overwhelming pressure coming at us. Maybe we were wrong to have such a, a hard, fast stand on the principles of God's Word. Maybe, maybe we should lighten up a bit. Maybe we should loosen our grip. And many, 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 many churches throughout our nation uh, have done that, have departed from the anchor that they once held to. We can't do that, church. We cannot do that. Instead, we need to take the position that we're challenged to have and encouraged to have and reminded to have in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says this, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That only happens, church, through the Word of God. That is the tool that we're given by God for the transformation and renewal of our mind. It never will happen apart from the Word of God. And it will always happen as we're in the Word and the Spirit of God who is the great illuminator of the Word of God, who dwells in us as believers in Christ, as He guides us through the Word, the truth, because He is, after all, the Spirit of truth. He guides us in that, and He will constantly be transforming and renewing our mind. He'll constantly be aiding our discernment process. He'll give us the ability to discern. He'll give us the ability to recognize truth or falsehood. This is accurate, this is not. This is good, this is harmful. And He'll give us the ability to do that. And and He'll assist that. He'll empower that. And we'll be able to know then what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. But it's not going to happen apart from that. And no matter how difficult the age in which we find ourselves is or might be, what we have to do as believers in Christ is be absolutely resolved to not conform to it as easy as it might appear to be to do so. Because it will never work out that way. The reason we cannot coexist, you know, like the, uh, the bumper stickers that were very popular for a long time, I still see them, has the different major symbols of the world religions and it spells out coexist, you know. The reason we cannot do that is not because we as believers in Christ are just so much better than everyone else. It's not because we have a superiority complex. That's not it at all. It's because there's one and only truth. 
Truth has to be universal by being truth. It has to be that. There has to be one standard of truth that's objective. Or truth doesn't exist. Thankfully, we know by God's grace and by His revelation of truth in His Word and through His Spirit, we know what that standard of truth is. We know what that source of universal truth is. We know what the absolute objective truth is. It's actually a name. It's Jesus. Jesus is truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The only way, the only source of absolute truth, and the only source of everlasting life. And no one can come to the Father, know Him, be loved by Him, be known by Him, have a relationship with Him. That's what coming to the Father means. No one can do that apart from or outside of Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And the reason we need to know the Word of God is because it points us to the living and eternal Word of God, which Jesus is. John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And John's prologue there in chapter 1 goes on and it says, No one has ever seen God the Father face to face. The only Son who is Himself God has explained Him. That's how Jesus is the eternal word. And the the written word always points to him. The written word always points to the living word. That's why we need to be transformed and renewed in our mind by the word of God so that we can discern what is pointing us to the word, the the living eternal word, the, the son, Jesus, or what is pointing us away from him. We have to have discernment for that. We find it in the word of God. In John 17, 17, Jesus himself said, as he prayed to the Father before he went to the cross. He said, don't take my followers, don't take my disciples, which was the original ones there, as well as you and me today, all who follow him. He said to the Father, don't take them out of the world. Don't just take them away and and cause them to have no effect and no benefit, no impact on the world around them. Rather, leave them in the world, use them here, but sanctify them, I pray, Father. Set them apart and grow them and progress them more and more and more towards me. Make them more and more like me. And here's how he prayed that that would happen. Sanctify them, he prayed to his Father, by the truth. Don't miss this part. Your word is truth. So how are we to be sanctified? How are we to be set apart and transformed rather than conformed to the world around us? How are we to be set apart from all things that are false by the word of God, which is truth. And the reason we can always trust that that's true, the reason we can trust that the word of God is true, always will be true, and will always be the only absolute source of truth for us in all things, not just in matters of religion, quote, quote, but in all things in life, The reason we can trust that is because of what Psalm 119, verse 89 says. Here's what it says. Lord, your word is forever. Get the the sandlot image in your mind. You remember when in the sandlot, the question is, how long will the the baseball stay over the fence because of the beast? And the the little guy says, forever. Get that in your mind. 
Lord, your word is forever. There's no end to forever. Forever goes on and on and on and on. And then it says this. I love this part. It is firmly fixed in heaven. That's settled. That's established. That's anchored. That's not going anywhere. The reason we can trust the word of God here on earth, that it will always accomplish what it says it will accomplish, that it means what it says and it will always do what it says it will do. The reason we can trust that is because it's settled in heaven. And so as it is in heaven, it will always be on earth. That's why the Word of God will never return to Him void, empty, but will always accomplish the purpose for which it is sent. Because it's been settled in heaven where there is no corruption or decay. My friends, all this means for us something that you know and you recognize, but we need to remember and we need to apply when it comes to our belief in the Word of God, our being anchored to it, and in our applying it to all the examples of falsehood that we're going to come in contact with all through our lives. The reality is this. The way you spot a counterfeit is by knowing and studying and continuing to return to the real thing. That's how you recognize a counterfeit from something that is true, by knowing the true and the real deal. You study that, you know that. That way when anything counterfeit comes along, you say, oh, well, I recognize that. That's not right. That's not true. The reason that we know what a crooked line is, the reason we can spot a crooked line is because we've seen what a straight line looks like. That's always what the Word of God will be. It will always be the straight line through every age, through all of life. It will always be the real deal. We've got to keep coming back to it. We've got to keep believing it. We've got to know it. We've got to lift it high. Because it will always stand, no matter what. Let's keep that in mind as we go forward in this series and as you go forward in life. In a few minutes, you'll step out those doors and you go out into a world where you will be inundated with examples of falsehood and examples of people and things that are calling you to question what you have believed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that it is firmly established and fixed in heaven. I thank you that We can be sure that what we have is the truth, the absolute standard of truth, not because of any person that has said it is so, not because people that recorded this word are just that brilliant. It's not why we can trust it. It's not because it's been around for as long as it has. We can trust your word as being true and being the ultimate source of truth because it is your very word. And because you are eternally trustworthy, never changing, so your word is. And as we trust you, help us to trust your word, knowing that we can't separate that. 
we don't really trust you, we're not going to be able to trust your word. If we don't really trust your word, we're not going to be able to really trust you. So please, help us to be people, called out ones, that believe the only way we're going to be sanctified is by your word, which is truth. Help us to do that, I pray, in the power of your Spirit, whom we have through your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.